Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week we have another episode that comes from our Digiday Publishing Summit Live, which we just had a couple of weeks ago. In this one, in a keynote session, I speak with Blavity CEO Morgan DeBon about the challenges that she's faced um, raising investment as a media company focused on serving the black community. We talk about systemic racism, we talk about how Blavity makes money, and whether Advertisers are to be believed when they say that they are going to earmark more money for Black-owned media. Hope you enjoy the episode. So to get started, I want to bring in Morgan DeBond. Morgan, welcome to the Digiday Publishing Summit. Thank you for having me. So you're, are you in Los Angeles right now? I am in LA, yes. Okay, good. So for those who don't know... Blavity. Let's actually go back. Um, Explain sort of your background and then leading up to Blavity, because I want to talk about like the opportunity that you saw. Yeah. So a little bit about me. Um, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I started my career, uh, went to WashU and then started my career in Silicon Valley and moved to Mountain View, um, worked at Intuit, which I loved, you know, big tech company, legacy brands um, as a product manager but I had this kind of feeling because I was home, which was, you know, in Mountain View. I was like, where am I? It was a complete culture shock. I felt really out of place and I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have any friends after work. I mean, I had my work friends, but like, you know, yeah, different types of people. So um, I started to hang out with a few of my friends who actually I went to college with after work. One of my friends who's now our CTO, Jeff, was at Palantir and they had free food. So I was going over there, you know, I was 20, 22, 23 at the time. Um, and I started to learn a lot about, oh, wow, this is an emotional feeling that a lot of people have, this feeling of loneliness, of feeling not seen, um, of feeling like you're an other or um, and because of the diaspora, I think a lot of people of color, and we're seeing this now, of course, today, Blavity started six years ago, but the feeling um, that in the conversations that we're having today as a community, I think, um, really share kind of what I was feeling back then as well. And so mm-hmm. Blavity started with this idea of how do we recreate um, this moment of feeling together of uh, when we all went to college together, my co-founders and I, we were sitting at the lunch table every single day. And that was the one place where we felt seen, where we had time to talk to each other, where we had time to learn about different things happening in on campus and class. And then when we graduated, it all went away. So Blavity, which is the word that we use, which stands for Black Gravity, was started around how do we create a platform and a media brand to bring together young Black people of color around this country to talk about ideas, to share their thoughts, to learn and to connect a network so they can feel comfortable and seen and um, feel safe in a space, even if it's online. Yeah. So what did you see that wasn't being addressed by legacy publications, both mainstream, but also, you know, there's been a lot of publications that are geared to, to Black Americans. So what were you seeing that they, the opportunity there that, that wasn't being served? So a couple of things. Um, one, you know, I started the company at a time when you know, Mike was really big, Upworthy was, was getting quite large, BuzzFeed was really starting to scale. 
And um, it became apparent to me that there was an opportunity from a media, millennial media point of view, but none of them were really catering to people of color and culture and conversations. It was still very much from a white lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the black media side, as you mentioned, there's tons of legacy brands, right? There's BET, there's Essence, there's Ebony yeah. Jet, um, The Root. But one of the things that we realized early was that they were still speaking to a really old audience. So the age, the average age of their readership was about 35 plus, almost almost up to 40, depending on the brand, especially back then. And so there was this huge gap where you know that there's, there's an industry and an opportunity because you see these mainstream, non-Black, non-POC publications growing quickly, getting funding, um, having huge audiences. And then you see legacy brands that are not adopting new technology, social media, user-generated content, um, really thinking about design and experience. And that was just a, a fantastic gap. And then, you know, the last bucket, which we all know is is relevant, you know, especially here when we're talking to our publishing audience, is advertisers. Advertisers spend millions and millions of dollars on multicultural advertising. Um, and where were they spending it? You know, that was always the question. I was like, well, where is this money going? And what t- turned yeah. out to be true is that some of the money was going to your mainstream publications who were saying that they could cater to black audiences when they actually really didn't do that very well. And so there's a, a big opportunity just from a, a revenue point of view as well mm-hmm. that, um, you know, turned out to be true. Okay. So black millennials, how big is this audience? Cause that's the first, that's the first thing the advertisers will say. Like, what, so what is your sort of market sizing? You're in Mountain View, so you know all the market sizing. And the- <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think there's around 40 million um, Black people in America. It's a tough number to gauge because a lot of people identify as uh, Black and or are from the diaspora. So one of the fastest growing populations is actually immigrants. So first generation or second generation non-African Americans in the U.S., um, and so the population is constantly evolving and, and increasingly, you know, everyone's be, is becoming multicultural, multiracial as well. So, but I mean, millennials, I mean, you've got two circles, right? It's like black Americans and then millennials, right? True. But actually, I guess one thing that's important about Blavity is that our audience isn't just black. So the majority of our audience at this point isn't, uh, just black millennials. So our content caters to black millennials, but just like music and sports and everything in black culture. I mean, the audience, total market size of Blavity is uh, quite large. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of view? I mean, every publication sort of, you know, media brands typically have like a point of view. Like, how would you describe the sort of Blavity point of view? Or do you there or would you say there isn't one? You know, so I would say. One, Blavity has five brands, so we're a house of brands. We have our news yeah. brand, which is Blavity News, and then you know we have different lifestyle brands. Um, our company point of view is unapologetic, and uh, we speak to the black audience. So although we have know that we have a non-black audience that at this point is becoming larger than our black audience, we are still very focused on our target market, which is the black millennial and now Gen Z, you know, as we all get a bit older. So anyone 18 to 40, 45 at this point. Um, and our, our voices, um, you know, if you look at our articles, the stories that come out, you'll see a lot of stuff that's not covered in mainstream. Um, and there's a reason for that. We know that there are mm-hmm. local stories, regional stories, and that 
aren't going to get covered. I mean, we're starting to see that now in, in today's climate. Um, and so we try to stick with the truth and build trust with our audience really early on in their kind of journey in terms of getting to know us as a brand. Mm-hmm. G- give me an example of the kind of coverage that isn't, I mean, because I, I want to get to the, the current moment because I think there's there's a big spotlight on stories that simply weren't being told, you know, enough. But give me an example of a story that like Blavity would latch onto that maybe mainstream uh, media would not. Let's see, a story that we broke, um, or it's just any story related to kind of race and social justice, um, local heroes. So a lot of like entrepreneurial stories about people who have kind of like black joy stories, black happiness stories. Um, we talk mm-hmm. a lot about relationships and and black families. So highlighting the black dad, highlighting success of, of black young black kids who've done really great things. Um, you know, I think the mainstream media and in general kind of digital publications tend to latch on to negativity. And um, if you go to our site, you're, you're going to very rarely see any negative black on black kind of negative stories. We really try to make sure that we are having a balanced point of view because there's really more good than there is bad. And a lot of times it just doesn't get covered. So we're in a moment with like three overlapping crises. We were talking about this yesterday. It's a big accelerant on a lot of uh, trends. Um, But obviously, we've got the coronavirus and then the economic crisis and now um, a social crisis and a reckoning, really, I think, um, around uh, systemic racism and injustice and uh, inequality in this country. Um, So how, how does this at all change? I mean, obviously, the mainstream media is racing to sort of catch up and both like thinking, you know, maybe doing an inventory internally, but also with, with, with their coverage. Right. Um, talk to me a little bit about the experience of, of having, it's like everyone's sort of going in this direction, but I mean, you guys are starting there. You're like, yes, thank you. Welcome. Um, I don't know. How, how does the coverage change, you know, from the Blavity point of view? The coverage hasn't changed. Um, We've been covering police brutality uh, and systemic racism since we started. I started, I quit my job about two months after Mike Brown happened. Um, And part of that was because I felt like the news coverage, even black news coverage, wasn't truly actually sharing the real stories and about peaceful protests and um, giving people access on how to get people out of jail. I mean, it's kind of deja vu because the moment that everyone now finally as a country is experiencing together was the exact experience that we were having as a company six years ago. So we've been dedicated consistently through time to always cover these types of stories. And so in some ways, it's actually a bit of a relief that because you feel kind of crazy. You get a little numb when you cover kind of like black death and police brutality and you're like you guys like this is real stuff and this is happening often and we get emails and dms from mothers and sisters and wives and partners who want their story of their loved one who got killed to be the one to be the next mm-hmm. george floyd be the one that that gets redemption um and gets attention and it's it breaks our news team's heart i think over the last few years. And it's completely, um, I think there's a lot of burnout in black reporting and black journalists because 
we are often the ones carrying that burden and screaming and yelling and no one's paying attention. So right now, the team feels very energized because it's finally a moment. I mean, they're like, what else can we do? What else can we do? What else can we do? Um, I think the challenge at the leadership level for me has been, uh, to your point, we are still in COVID. And so just yeah. like many other publications, we had budget cuts and we had to reduce staff and we had to figure out how to you know, slow down burn during the, the next foreseeable future while the economy recovers and our advertisers start to come back. Um, but what we saw is that advertisers then were starting to come back because COVID was kind of slowing down. Um, but then this hit. And so advertisers paused their campaigns out of respect. Um, but as a black media publication, um, and I read about this a bunch on DigiDay, so I'm glad that the topic is being addressed now. When you think about keyword blocking, um, you know, we have black and, and African-American and police and brutality on all of our news articles. Yeah. So we can't run ads on them, right? So I'm taking so many financial hits for doing what's right and covering what's right. Um, and what's true, most importantly, as a news publication, and it's this constant conflict. And, you know, I'm grateful that we have a diversified business where we can kind of float it, but it is a weird moment where I want to ramp up and I want to hire more, but it's not always the best business decision. Yeah. I want to get to the diversified model, but just to stay on the, the, the social crisis, I mean, you talked about, Mike Brown, and and that was you know right when you were starting, and now unfortunately we we have these names that keep going on, and now we're on George Floyd. Um, is this different? I mean, from my point of view, it feels different, but like that's from my point of view. I want to know from your point of view. No, this isn't different. I think that it's a moment in time. Um, I think it's important that we're having this discussion. I hope that it that it becomes a moment of faster change. But I think we have a long road to go. There's, this is what's happening is that now there's an opening of conversation where we can address the systemic racism um, and white supremacy across every single industry in America. I mean, not just media, not just in the police force, not just in tech, not just in its education. It's every single industry. So that is 400 plus years of infrastructure that we have to start to unwind and untangle and it's incredibly complex. So I yeah. believe that this is a moment in time where we will accelerate. Um, but I believe that it's going to require five, 10 year commitments, mostly driven in my opinion, by corporations and um, large tech companies. And it's, it's great to see the pressure that's being applied to Facebook and Twitter um, because they control so much of what we see as a community is just it's four or five companies that control a lot of information for us. So um, is it different? Not necessarily. Will it speed up change? Yes, I definitely think so. Okay. So you're cautiously somewhat optimistic. Is that fair? I'm cautiously optimistic and I'm running as fast as I can while we have people's attention. Okay, so let's talk about the because um, I think that is an, an important point. I mean, I, I think just Procter and Gamble just came out, um, and look, not to be a cynic about it, but marketers talk a lot, and sometimes their actions do not um, do not follow their words. I know this is a shock to everyone who's is listening, um, but they came out and they said they were going to direct more uh, money, which is good, to uh, minority-owned media, which would be great. Right. <laughs> so 
they got to follow through. Um, so many because <laughs> go ahead. You seem like you're ready to. So here's so, so here's the thing. Like literally, the day that they say that is the same day that three of our RFPs from them get declined. Right. So I just don't believe the words until I see the results. And yeah. you know, everyone's making all these statements and all these commitments. And I also challenge when people say we're going to spend a hundred million dollars on the on the black community. Well, the question is, well, how much were you already spending? Because you might have already been spending $100 million when you add up all of these little things that you do. It's $100 million when you spend a billion dollars on advertising enough, right? And or a billion plus, really, if you're, we're talking about a P&G, right? And so yeah. I think that that's, that's one thing, too. The systemic racism that comes into play is actually, well, how are they defining black media? Are we saying, um, is Vice a black media publication? is Refinery29 a black media publication? Like, are we saying it's black owned? I have VCs, so am I not black media because I have venture capital? Like, those are the details yeah. that I'll get me to get into. And that's why I'm saying this is a five to 10 year process because, yeah, you know, it's just challenging. Right. No, I, lo- I actually love to hear you say that because I think when we talk about it internally, we, we have, you know, a couple different brands and I know it's talking with the Glossy team and, you know, in beauty, they have uh, 15% of shelf space. Okay. That sounds great. How do you measure that? How are you going to be accountable to that? What qualifies um, a brand uh, to that 15% um, of shelf space? Uh, there is a lot of details they may have already had 7% shelf space. So are we saying 15%? Yeah. And where are those shelves? Where are the shelves? <laughs> are we getting an aisle? So, yes. Like we used to have a Target. <laughs> right, yes. There's still, I mean, I think there was the thing, Walmart stopped the the keeping uh, ethnic hair care brands under uh, whatever lock and key and stuff like this. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of craziness hopefully will be addressed, but I'm with you as far as accountability goes, because it has to be accountable. And a lot of, you know, Mark Pritchard is kind of a politician, really, right? I mean, like, he's sort of talking to an audience of brand managers who are making their own decisions in some ways. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's whether that filters down to the executional level, because I know you run into this, because then you're talking about agencies. So tell me about that, the, the, the business model. Advertising is a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Explain how you were thinking through the business model and what does it look like? Yeah, so when I first started the company, coming from a tech background, I actually very much knew that media was a bad industry to go into. So if, if you look at uh, old, old interviews with me, I would have said, we are not a media company, no. Because I know the multiple, I know the advertising, thank you. <laughs> Um, I want it to be a platform. And so that's why Blavity is always really focused on building out other brands and focusing on the community and focusing on going really deep with our audience, understanding their needs. Maybe we use media in the beginning when we first started the company to build out the audience and make sure we have a huge reach. But then what are we going to do with those eyeballs? And what are we going to do with those conversations and the data that we have? So we started very clearly um, with media and content and it's simple display ad business. Um, we then added branded editorial content, etc., and experimental, right? Experiential. Um, so we have huge conferences, Afrotech, which is a black tech conference, the largest in the country. Um, you know, unfortunately is, is of course going virtual this year. And then uh, we had a variety of, of summits and, and conversations that we do with brand partners. So 
that's the core media business. Um, but then on top of that, we're starting to build our consumer revenue business. So we have another brand called Travel Noir, which is the largest black travel community in the world. So, so for Travel Noir, we've started to test uh, a, and we've done this for about a year and a half now, a membership community where black travelers can come together. They can um, organize group trips. They can uh, identify when you're going to Prague, what are all the black restaurants, cafes, clubs, bars, hotels that you can go to um, and who's already there so you can hang out with local people. So that community has actually been growing very quickly. And so we're starting to build out other smaller groups of direct-to-consumer revenue um, and memberships. And so we have something launching next month that I'm very excited about for our Afrotech community um, because we know that, you know, Blavity's future, Blavity Inc. as a company, we are, we want to be around for a very long time. And so that means that we need to identify ways that we don't need to be, want to be at the market flows of what's trendy. You know, I don't need black to right. be trendy for us to have a strong business. Um, and there's enough money within our own community. So um, that's what we're starting to build into and have been working on behind the scenes for the last two years. Right. So, I mean, it's a community focused model. And I think we're seeing the power of community focused models, so like whether they're a B2B community. I mean, we obviously believe in that. Um, or whether it's the community that you're building, because you can make a lot of, you can make money a whole bunch of different ways that that aren't necessarily advertising. Exactly. Um, but advertising right now is a big driver of the business, right? Well, yes, certainly, but not display advertising. So I would say display is basically a break-even, you know, model for us. It finances the editorial freelance yeah. team. Um, but our real bread and butter comes with the experiential 360 deals. So we'll have a deal with a huge automotive company and they'll say, great, we want to sponsor the event. It includes $200,000 in spend with our agency and it includes, you know, a video editorial series. So our, we've taught and worked with our brands to make sure that they also go deep with our audience and they're not just sprinkling you know, an ad here, and ad there. They're doing multi-quarter campaigns, some multi-year campaigns that are going deep with a very, even a niche within the Black community, like technologists or Black moms or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. So you raised money, right? It, talk to us about that experience um, of raising money, um, First of all, for um, a community model that was going to be in media, at least initially, um, and also one that was uh, focused on the black community, which um, I'm sure a lot of venture capitalists uh, have not do not have a, por a portfolio <laughs> in that. So yeah. explain that experience. Yeah. So I've raised a little over 10 million um, in the last four years. Um, GV led our A, which was about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. Um, and I mean, how much time do you have, Brian? You know, I think fundraising, first of all, is very difficult. Fundraising for a media company because of the multiple and because of the market, very difficult. Um, funding for a media company that caters to an audience that nobody thinks matters is, uh, mm -hmm. also very difficult. Um, and I'm a black woman and I'm from the Midwest. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Stanford. I'm 411. I mean, I've got a lot of reasons why we should not have be here today. And we're here despite that because, um, 
I made a choice early on that I didn't want to sacrifice the experience of our platform and our company and our brand because I was afraid that others would not understand. And so I made sure that when I was in Silicon Valley, I built relationships with different venture capitalists. And actually, you know, I went out to first social impact investors um, were the first people to actually fund us because they had a, a deeper understanding of what it could mean for our country, for the community to have a black news brand that was very serious and um, that could start to share these stories and start to apply pressure onto the culture and onto mainstream media and news. Um, and even if we failed the social impact model, which, you know, of course they hope you don't fail, but they are a little bit less um, concerned with the failure if you are making an impact along the way, right? Or if your mm -hmm. return is, is, it doesn't need to be a 10x return necessarily, uh, especially at the early stage. Now, when I raised our Series A, that's a very different story. You know, I went into the institutional Silicon Valley system with our Series A because I want us to scale and I wanted a partner that could be on our board um, and with me as we started to build out um, the operating team and bring experienced leaders into the company, build out our ad technology and our ad network, um, and really start to build out the long-term plan for Blavity. And you know, as we approach our Series B, we've been able to make a lot of progress because we had the backing of GV and of Comcast and, and a variety of other fantastic venture funds um, that have really propelled us to the next next level. Mm -hmm. Did you see? Um like examples of systemic racism within venture capital? I mean, because there's obviously, there's a lot of black black owned businesses that simply do not get, I mean, you look at the type of people who get funded there, there's clearly um, an issue. I don't know if I need a ton of data to prove that out, but. Yeah, so, you know, there's less than 1% of, of money, venture funding goes to black women. And I think it's even lower than that, um, but, so I, you know, I'm not a normal person to be running around Menlo Park. They don't all look like me <laughs> when, you, when you knock on mm -hmm. Silicon Valley's door. Um, You're not wearing a vest. Right. I'm not, I'm like, <laughs> I'm kind of going, yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> so, you know, for, for me, the systemic racism comes in the fact that I don't ever get the benefit of the doubt. My company doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. Um, I, as the CEO, don't get the benefit of the doubt. And, um, that is where you have to come with armor. I mean, it is like a mental exercise and marathon like you wouldn't believe going out and fundraising to majority white men um, and mm -hmm. some white women in Silicon Valley. It is um, so the systemic racism, like some examples would be them not believing my numbers. So because I knew that my numbers had to be two times, three times as good, my numbers looked crazy. I mean, I had huge organic growth. We didn't spend a dollar on advert on Facebook ads for the first three years. And our traffic was nuts. It was comparable to people who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on Facebook ads a month. So they're like, well, we need access to your Google analytics and we need access to this and we need access to this. And it's all mm. of this uh, diligence that, you know, certainly is the process. But the question is, would you run the exact same media company through this process? If, they weren't black. Right. But it's the definition of, of systemic racism, right? I mean, it's it's that there's two sets of, of rules. And, you know, I think that's the, I think, I don't want to say the hard part, but that's the part that I think a lot of white people are waking up to is that they've had an unfair advantage all these years, even though they have sort of 
overlooked it because mm-hmm. they didn't have to go through all that on every level, right? How about in media? What do you find? Uh, I mean, what are issues of systemic racism do you think that are still being overlooked in the media industry? Well, one of the things that stories that I hear often from our our reporters and our freelancers is how difficult it is for them to get a job at a mainstream media publication. So we're oftentimes the first person to hire them um, and train them and invest in them. And that has been really, I think, burdensome and challenging. It's a beautiful kind of opportunity because people will come to Blavity and then they then they get the job at NPR or Vice or Vox or wherever. Um, but the thing is that they're, they weren't any, they were only marginally better having been with us and then going to Vox. They were already fantastic, right? So how, why is that? Why does someone need a stamp of approval from a brand like Blavity before they get a job? And how does someone break into the journalism industry with if we're not having diverse newsrooms? Like, where does it start, right? Um, and so there is, I think the newsroom needs to be more diverse um, and then the executive leadership within news organizations also needs to be more diverse. I mean, we've started to see some change. And of course, we've seen some of the, the people who've resigned recently. Um, but the question is, who are they going to replace those leaders with? And what is their vision for a multicultural newsroom in the future? I mean, America as a population is multicultural. And so our newsrooms need to reflect that. And the leadership needs to reflect that or else... The stories will continue to just be this echo chamber of white privilege that we are all looking in and like, you guys, this is not real. Like, this is not what life is actually like in America. So I think that's, um, I'm hopeful that this is an opportunity for new leaders to step into some of the powers that be. And I also encourage everyone to consider that first tier of reporters and people that you hire, you know, are you giving that person a chance who goes to Howard or Spelman or even fresh out of Columbia Journalism School? Are you giving that person a chance um, or are you coming up again with all these other rules and reasons why they can't work there? Yeah, I mean, you're in Los Angeles and the L.A. Times is in in the midst of this reckoning right now. Right. And I think what's interesting is I kind of wrote about I wrote about this I mean kind of I wrote about this last week is that it's a bottom up revolt, you know, in some ways that I think it kind of speaks to a bit of a crisis of confidence in the leadership of of media companies in that um, a mostly younger generation is like sort of revolting. I agree. I think the challenge um, has also been that media as an industry has had a tough time, right? So like the salaries yeah. are low. The benefits are low. Uh, it's expensive to travel, and if there's a depressed kind of advertising budget and revenue stream, then the people who are going to get it most are the people furthest away from the top, right? So that's something that we try to reconcile a lot with Blavity is trying to understand well, how can we make sure that if, even if it's not through like, how do we make sure that there's development and growth? even at the lower tier of our first kind of on the ground reporters, because it's important that we are developing them, even if it's more than just, hey, here's a raise every quarter. We can't always do that, as I said, because of systemic racism and advertising, et cetera. But um, that's the challenge that I think we have to really fix as an industry is understanding our business model. What is the essence of the business of media in 2030? 
Is it still advertising? And if so, we need to figure that out because we're not going to be able to pay people living wages and like really build out non-toxic workplaces and kick out all these old white men that don't need to work here anymore. Like we need to really have a whole industry conversation about the future of media. Right. Um, so final thing is just around uh, coronavirus and the, the economic challenges um, is what is that accelerated for Blavity? I mean, we, we hear about accelerations constantly and, and we've talked about some of them, but what, what is it accelerated in your business? Because, I mean, everyone's trying to get to the other side of this. I mean, you got to get to the other side first and foremost, but assuming that you get to the other side, you ideally are going to accelerate um, certain things within your business in order to be positioned for growth on the other side. Yeah, we've accelerated uh, three things. One is our um, virtual community building skills. I mean, we were an in-person happy hour, in-person parties, in-person you know, panel series type of company. We have built that muscle so fast to be able to do these virtual events. And they're fantastic because it reduces the barrier to entry for people to actually come and engage with one another. So they've become more diverse, more accessible. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that continuing to be a part of the business. And then two is the platform. So the platform that we're launching next month for Afrotech is something that we were slowly building over the last year. And we poured so much fire onto that thing once everything shut down so that we could um, really be available in there so that our community of Afrotech, because we can't be in person this year, is able to actually have something that and that will sustain, you know, throughout the, the foreseeable future. It's a platform to stay. It's a, it's a whole new brand. So um, those would be the first two. And then the last would be, um, and this is something that's a little bit more intangible, is actually our company culture, I think, has gotten a lot better and more intentional because we we were a really fun place to go into the office every day. Everybody's young. Everybody's hip. We're having a good time, which was fine. But with Corona, we actually had to think about, well, what does that translate into in terms of morning meditations that we do every day as a team or company town halls? Even my leadership, I've had to be more communicative. I've had to write more things down. And so I think that is going to make us stronger in the long run. We've built up this muscle of being able to work remotely and be efficient and still stay Mm -hmm. connected. Um, And that's- Will you go back to the office? I don't think so. I mean- it's going to be tough. I will lose talent. I will lose talent trying to have everybody come back into the office. People have moved. People have moved on. Um, and I don't think that we're going to be in the same way that we were in the past. We might have an office that people can drop into and make it more of a co-working creative space for like podcasts and videos and just fun stuff. Yeah. But it's not going to be a requirement. Yeah. Okay, Morgan, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. And thank you all for joining us this week uh, for the Digiday Podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode.